Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This morning we will wrap up our 2019 Advent series on women in the line of Jesus by looking at the final woman that Matthew gives here in the genealogy of Jesus. Certainly there were more than the five that are listed, but the final woman in this genealogy is, of course, Mary. So we're going to zoom in on sort of the scandal that would have surrounded uh, this event in her life as we've been looking at sort of the troublesome uh, events surrounding the lives of these other women who are mentioned in uh, Matthew's genealogy, and certainly not uh, because of those women alone. There are others that are surrounding them, and uh, these events are as a result of God's sovereign decree, certainly. But uh, there's a reason that Matthew draws these names out that we've looked at over the last few weeks together, and so we'll look at Mary uh, this morning as the final one in uh, this genealogy. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read aloud this morning the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to look at the final verses together in our study together, but I wanted to read and give context for this. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Matthew the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatelil, and Sheatelil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Messiah. 14 generations. That is the word of God. You may be seated. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it both in the Old and New Testament readings this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Father, as we open your word and as we review this great genealogy and Lord, are able to trace the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ through these generations, 
these three generations of 14, we know, Lord, that you have superintended all that has happened. You have decreed all that will occur. You have subverted the sinfulness of mankind. And through all of those things, you have brought into the world your own eternal Son, who is co-equal with you in eternity and in all of your essence. And that the plan of the great triune God has come to pass in the incarnation of the Son, the eternal Son, who comes to earth, who puts on humanity. Lord, and even as we think of these sins that were subverted by you, this decree of yours, we recognize that It is for the sake of reconciling man to yourself that you have done this. Through the miraculous virgin incarnation birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his perfect obedience to the law. Through his passive obedience on the cross. Receiving the wrath that sinners like me and like others in this room deserve. And Him being raised again on the third day in order to show His victory over sin and death. And Lord, we think also of Your second coming today as we ponder Your first. That You are coming again. Lord, we are so grateful. And we come with our Bibles open this morning recognizing that Your Holy Spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs now attends to our service together here, our worship in the Word, by illuminating our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these truths. And Lord, I pray for those who may not know you this morning, that what you said in the Gospel of John would be true today, that the Spirit would convict hearts that do not know you, that those who do not know you would come to see their own need of a Savior because of their sin, just like my sin and a need to trust fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, Lord, we ask for your help. Pray that you get me out of the way. Continue to humble me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you have heard our FBC-sent missionary, K.J. Singleton, talk about the honor and shame culture of the East and how, in some ways, that differs uh, from the guilt and forgiveness culture of the West. There's this honor and shame culture in the East mainly, and in the West there's sort of this legal representation kind of thoughts that we have regarding um, sin and guilt and these kinds of matters. And uh, you present the very same gospel to all cultures, recognizing though how they think about sinfulness and forgiveness and those sorts of matters. Jason Georges states of the biblical view of honor and shame that, quote, God created humans with glory and honor, as it says in Psalm 8.6. Adam and Eve were honored co-regents, naked, yet unashamed in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. But then shame entered into the story. Still quoting from George's, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they hid and covered themselves, the hallmark of shame. 
The human family lost face before God and was banished from his presence. Literally, that's what happens in the Genesis event. They are put out of the presence of God where they fellowship face to face with him. Continuing to quote from Georgia's, to remove this disgrace, people manipulate cultural systems to make a name for themselves. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, we see that this is what is attempted at the Tower of Babel. They're trying to remake a name for themselves to cover their shame. Shame is not limited, though, to non-Western contexts. Continuing to quote here, people of every culture feel unworthy and feel rejection before others because we all fall short of the glory of God. Glory or honor that is due God, right? Romans 3, verse 23, end quote. It's interesting then, as we seek to think about this concept of honor and shame, to see it in the events that lead to the birth of Messiah. This is true as we consider the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, as we see today in Matthew chapter 1. But through what would certainly have brought shame externally to Mary and her betrothed husband, Joseph, God brings a solution to sinfulness, the shame of God's creation to restore honor and bring forgiveness to those who have sinned. So as we have seen in uh, the last few weeks concerning the other women that we brought up in the lineage of Jesus, we now see uh, that uh, shame that was brought because of a name and God yet used to reconcile mankind to himself in bringing uh, the Messiah through this line. We see this even at the very last moment as this Messiah comes into the world. Even the shame that would have surrounded the pregnancy of Mary. And we have to think about it in those terms because that is the terms in which the Scripture portrays it to us. However... And we'll see this as our main point on the back of your bulletin if you look there. God is gracious to send His Son into the world, bringing the presence of God to man and reconciling mankind to Himself through Him. God is gracious to send His Son into the world, bringing the presence of God to man. So once again, we see this honor and shame idea here as Mary is dishonored uh, in society by this pregnancy that would have been seen as illegitimate by those who are not in the know. Just as in the garden, Adam and Eve were sent away from the presence of God, what do we find out in our text today? His name will be, as we heard in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, what? God with us. God comes and dwells with His creation once again, face to face. And it's seen first in the face of the child in the feeding trough. God is gracious to send His Son into the world, bringing the presence of God to man once again and reconciling mankind to Himself through Him. Which, of course, if we know the events, uh, means not just His incarnation, not just His birth, but as well the course, the trajectory of His life that every gospel, including Matthew, is on a course toward which is the cross. So therefore, we could say something like, from the cradle to the cross to the grave, right? To the ascension, to his resurrection. So I want us to see this morning three facets of the birth of Christ and the woman who bore him. Three facets of the birth of Christ and the woman who bore, bore him. The first is this. With child from the Holy Spirit, but shamed by society. Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit, 
but shamed by society. If I could just give you one phrase that might stamp this in your mind, miraculous birth looks like illegitimate birth in this context. Miraculous birth looks like illegitimate birth in this context. As S. Lewis Johnson uh, preached when he preached this passage in Matthew chapter 1, he said, it is not virgin birth and natural birth that are juxtaposed here. It is virgin birth and illegitimate birth that are juxtaposed here. It is virgin birth and, oops, I messed up and got pregnant before I was married. Birth here. First, we see Joseph's reaction to this whole matter of Mary being pregnant out of wedlock in verses 18 and 19. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that's sort of an engagement in the Jewish culture to Joseph, before they came together, that means sexually together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just You could say honorable man and unwilling to put her to what? Shame. You can say it. To shame, resolved to divorce her. What does it say? Quietly. This would be something that would have brought tremendous shame to Mary and tremendous disrepute to Joseph concerning his engagement to Mary. This is an illegitimate pregnancy from all external evidences. In fact, we see the Pharisees accuse Jesus as an illegitimate child. Keep your finger in Matthew and turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it said that how is it that you say we you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you will seek to kill me because of my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have... One Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear 
to hear my word. They're underhanded. You should turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Their underhanded accusation there is that Jesus is of illegitimate birth. In fact, in another place they say, who is your father? Implying that he is of illegitimate birth. I would submit that one of the reasons that Matthew includes all the women in the lineage above that we've looked at in the past few weeks is because of this accusation that would come against Mary. He's trying to lay out, especially for Jewish eyes, who would have been the main audience of the Gospel of Matthew, he's trying to lay out before Jewish eyes that God indeed used those who would have been seen as irreputable previously in the genealogy of Jesus. You see, the majority of Israelites were not expecting a carpenter's son to be their Messiah. They expected a royal king to come and consult with the religious leaders of that day. If he were to come in and to be who he said he would, certainly he would have been born in some sort of a palace and he would have come to them as the religious leaders of the day and consulted with them about how are we going to overthrow Rome and how is this going to bring the kingdom of God to earth in this day. They also were not expecting a suffering servant who would have brought a shameful reproach to Israel. But this is what the Bible had prophesied. You think about it. The king of the Jews, as his placard above his cross, laying there, or I mean, sorry, hanging there uh, uh, naked and shamefully as the king of the Jews? What are you talking about? We like to use phrases like, remember the reason for the season, without giving much thought to the reality of the reason that Jesus came. He did not come to create a holiday. And what we celebrate should not be just the arrival of Jesus, but what his arrival signified. The lineage that Matthew gives us not only solidly points to the prophecies about Messiah coming true, but also to the identity of Jesus as the one who came to reconcile men to God. God. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who is God, put on humanity to become the perfect sacrifice for sinners. The child who was born into humility first took a step of humility and submitting to the eternal plan of the Godhead, setting aside his divine banner and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. And we recall, of course, that he did not remain in the grave. Believers, this sort of historical account combined with what we know about the cross is the great leveler for us. None of us are above the sorts of sins we looked at over the past few weeks. Even Mary, who was not sinful in her conception, was a sinner by virtue of being born into humanity. She herself is in need of a Savior. We're so good at playing the comparison game. We find our righteousness in ourselves rather than looking to the righteousness of Christ. We find our righteousness in saying, at least I'm not as bad as. But we need to look at the righteousness of Christ. His fullness in what He accomplished in obedience to the law. His fullness in what He accomplished in obedience to the plan to be placed on a cross for the sin of sinners. The wrath that He received that we should have received. 
We must remember that our obedience to God is something that we do because we love Him, not because it earns favor with Him. It is something that is in response to what He has done for us. And because of what He has done for us, He has imputed, He has given us His righteousness, and we are able to obey out of love and desire to please Him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel the shame of sinfulness. You know you cannot stand before a holy God because you have dishonored Him and you have sinned against Him. There is forgiveness for that sin and for your name to be changed to reflect His name because He adopts you into His family. This is what certainly would be facing Mary and Joseph. And this is why Joseph, in being an honorable man, says, you know what, I'm going to, because of this situation, I'm going to quietly divorce her. I'm going to quietly send her away so that she doesn't have to deal with the shame, so that I don't have to deal with the dishonor. And there's a reason that he does that we're we're going to see in just a moment. But as Joseph ponders this shame and how he is to deal with Mary, we see, secondly, that he is comforted by God through an angel. Comforted by God through an angel. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph needed the word from the angel to confirm what was going on. Though he was seeking to be honorable and quietly divorcing Mary, he needed to know the plan of God. This was a miraculous plan. And the fulfillment of which Israel had been waiting. He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph have feared? Well, firstly, the stigma of marrying a woman who would have been seen as being pregnant out of wedlock. Which is technically true. She was was betrothed. She was engaged, as it were. And, And that betrothal is a little different than our engagement in the West. But it still required sexual purity of the parties before they got married. The the stigma would have carried in uh, as well as being a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock in this society. It would have carried into much more. And I don't want to read all the details of the law concerning this this morning. But if you read Deuteronomy chapter 22, you will see that in varying situations in which a woman could violate her virginity... The ultimate thing for her in that would have been death. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 22. In every situation where virginity is violated, she would have been stoned to death. So now we begin to understand why Joseph was trying to quietly divorce her. What did this mean in this society if he had publicly said, look... This woman, and this is what you're supposed to do according to law, this woman who was betrothed to be my wife, I can prove to you that she is not sexually pure because she is with child. And they would have taken her out in the city, probably to her father's front door, and her father, along with the city elders and anybody else who wanted to participate, 
could have stoned her to death, would have stoned her to death, according to Mosaic law. So there's a stigma that goes along with this. And we know that this stigma does not go away, does it? Because what we see in John, the religious leaders know who Jesus is. They know his story. They might be thinking, Mary got away with something here, but we know who you are, Jesus. But what is true of Mary? What is the truth in this situation? That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The importance of this cannot be overstated. And the reckoning of it could not have been conceived of by those who were looking from the outside in unless they believed this miraculous truth that Mary is truly with child miraculously because God put in her true humanity and true divinity. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, hypostatically united, we say, in theology to a human nature. One person, two natures, within a womb. You say, that's hard to believe. Yes, it is hard to believe. It is by faith, though, that we take it. Not because we're blind to the impossibility of it, but because we believe in the God who does miraculous things. And this is a miracle. And it cannot be explained by science, and that's okay. It is miraculous. It is of God. The power of God, it says in another place in the Gospels, overshadows her, and this comes to be because God says it. He decrees it. And without it, we are lost. The goal of this entire enterprise is the birth of the one who would take away the sins of his people. Look at what it says again. That which is in her is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 20, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Which means... God will save us, right? For He will save His people from their sins. And it's not just those of Israel who would believe, but all who come to faith in Him from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Who are these people of whom the angel speaks? It must not include only believing Israel, but you and me as well, if we are in Christ. He will. That is a statement of future, but a statement of fact. He will save His people from their sins. This is not what the religious leaders of the day we're expecting they, they expected a salvation, a rescue from Rome to be placed into the land that was promised to them, to Abraham. And they thought revolution is coming when Messiah comes. Therefore, they missed 
the Holy Son of God, who he truly was. This is what Peter preaches to them, isn't it? In Acts chapter 2, he says, This by the predetermined plan of God, you crucified the Son of God, the Holy Son of God. You placed him on a tree. And, and what did the people who were listening to that sermon say? Oh, you're full of it. We didn't do that. No, the scriptures say they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? When we hear about the coming Messiah through this means miraculous that God did in putting uh, the Son of God, very God of God, United to humanity within the womb of Mary. So that he would live a perfect life, obeying every jot and tittle of the law. So that when he goes to the tree, he is the perfect lamb of God. And there is no denying that. Pontius Pilate even says, I can find nothing wrong with this man. Crucify him. Crucify him, the crowds say. When they come to grips with what they've done, they say, what must we do to be rescued from this. And dear ones, today, my call to you is be rescued. Turn from your sin. Trust in the final work, the full work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, and be saved. It's not just those of Israel that he saves. He comes to save his people, those who would believe in him. The stigma associated with Mary's pregnancy, the illegitimacy of it, the shame of it, ironically becomes the means by which mankind can be reconciled to God through faith in the one whom she bore and what he came to do, which is what we see in our final point. Thirdly, prophecy fulfilled for the restoration of mankind. What is the purpose of this? So that he would save his people from his sin. And then Matthew says, look, it's been there the whole time. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isn't that so reassuring? It's not just that Isaiah said it. It's that God, through Isaiah, said it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which being translated, some translations say means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is according to all the Scripture. This is now Matthew commenting on these events. As he's reflecting, many years after this has happened, by the way, the Gospels are some of the last books written. He's reflecting back on this and he says, Oh, by the way, as I tell you this event, look at what God was doing the whole time. The trajectory of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is toward this very event. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, which you heard earlier in the Old Testament reading. The significance of this is that in one sense, Isaiah is prophesying something that was needed in Israel at the time of his writing it. So way back when Isaiah wrote this, there was a a need at the moment for Israel to hear these words, but there were echoes and shadows and types of what Israel needed to hear about their future as well. 
the ultimate salvation of Israel and others in the coming of Messiah. This echoes in the ears of those from a Jewish tradition as they read it and they hear this from Isaiah going, oh, there's something deeper there than just what was occurring at the time that Isaiah wrote this. Peter says in his letter that the prophets who prophesied these things, the Spirit of Christ was stirring within them so that they would seek out what exactly God was doing and at what time He would do it. (laughs) And Matthew is saying here, here it is. This is what he's doing. He's bringing God back present with His people. Prophecy fulfilled for the restoration of mankind. Reading on as we did in verses 24 and 25, Joseph did what God said would be right and honorable by taking Mary as his wife and not being intimate with her and likely shielding her and protecting her from the stigma the best way he knew how in that society. He, by legally marrying Mary, then also legally adopts Jesus as his own. He helped take some of that stigma away by marrying her. That would have taken faith in that society. It would have taken saying, okay, God, I trust you. I believe you. I need to do this. And he protected her. And he did not know her, did not have intimate relationship with her until after Jesus was born. In this, we see several truths we need to consider. One, we must trust the sovereignty of God who can take all of these messes, all the things we've looked at over the previous weeks, and transform them for his use, for his plan. Whatever you're facing, whether it's the results of your own sin or someone else's sin, God is in the midst of that, working all things for His glory and your good, as Romans 8, 28 through 30 tells us. Maybe you need to confess some sin in your heart and life, some ongoing, unconfessed sin, and you need help with that. We're here to come alongside of you and to help you with that. You need to maybe... Seek counsel of someone who can point you away from the despair and toward the providence of God. I would encourage you to seek that person in me or someone else today here in this fellowship, especially if you're a part of our local assembly here. Seek out an elder who would love to walk with you as you are not, dear one, are not beyond the point of God's grace and mercy. He is... Faithful and just to forgive us our sin if we confess our sin. Secondly, we we need to be the ones who are able to exercise this energy of that friend or fellow member of FBC and point them to the finished work of Christ. As we consider these last three weeks and we look at what God did in the midst of all of these situations, can we not see the grace and mercy of God 
extended beyond what we can even imagine. And being able to point others and encourage others to live faithfully for God, even as they're struggling with maybe a past, even as Steve prayed this morning, or a present that they cannot get free of either sin or the way they've been been sinned against. You could be here this morning and the reality for you is that you're the person who says, you don't know the shame in the sins that I have done. You don't know the level of despair because of the sins that I have committed. God could not accept me. That is a lie from Satan. No matter what you have done, Jesus died for the most grievous of sins. Come to Him. Trust Him. Trust in His forgiveness. All of us who are in Christ this morning are only sinners who have been given the righteousness of Christ. New creations because of what Jesus did. What we saw this morning even in this idea that He would come and save His people from their sins. What does that mean? How does this occur? Why can't we not just stop at the cradle? We have to go to the cross and the resurrection. Because that's what it takes for salvation. That's what it takes for reconciliation. Come to Him today. Trust in Him today. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection today. And if we're in Christ today, can we rejoice? Not just in the incarnation, which is glorious. It is a a glorious truth that we need to reflect upon. Eternal God taking on humanity, taking on human flesh. We can't Put it all together in our minds, but it's true. And we rejoice in that. Let's do that together. As we close in song together this morning, after I pray, let's rejoice in that truth. Uh, Pastor Steve is going to make himself available up here on my left, your right, after we're done singing. So if you want to talk to him about what it means to be reconciled to God through Christ, you, you come and see him. If you just want some prayer or to be pointed to someone who can help you, Uh, with ongoing sin and and the the likes of things that I said here at the end, please come and see him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, your tremendous love for us is seen in the incarnation, in the perfect life, the needful death, and the victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we ponder the gift of that is given in Emmanuel, God with us, in Jesus, who will save His people from their sins. May we ponder all of what that means and may we rejoice together today and throughout this week and throughout this coming new year in the grace and mercy, Lord, that You have poured out on sinners like us. And Lord, for those who do not know You, I pray that today would be the day that You would rescue them that they would recognize their need to turn from their sin, to repent, to trust in Christ alone. Would you do that, Lord, according to your will? We trust you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.